Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 500 for December 4th, 2019. On today's show, NEA Jazz Master Sheila Jordan. This show is supported by its members without whom the Jazz Session would not be possible. There are now two levels, $5 and $10 per month. Both come with cool bonus material. Visit thejazzsession.com slash join and become a member today. 500 shows! It's amazing. 500 shows! 500 shows! That's a lot of shows. That's like if you made 499 shows and then you recorded another one. That's how many shows it is. That's like if you made 501 shows and you deleted one accidentally. That's a lot of shows. I can't believe it. I honestly can't believe it. Later in the show, I will talk more about the ways in which I can't believe it. But it is incredible to me that this is the 500th episode of The Jazz Session. A wee little show that started way back in the dim and ancient mists of time when you still had to explain to people that no, you don't need an iPod to listen to a podcast. I'm super excited that the show is still alive. I'm super excited to have a guest like I have today who has been around this music almost as long as it's been around. It's, It's incredible. I'm so grateful to all of you, especially, especially, especially the people who are supporting this show financially. I cannot thank you enough for jumping on board and kicking in some of your hard earned money to make this show a reality. Thank you so much. And if you're not doing that yet, what better time to start than with the 500th episode? My guest is Sheila Jordan. I mean, she's been there since the days of Charlie Parker. And I don't just mean like she dug the music of Charlie Parker. I mean, she hung around with Charlie Parker. She considered Charlie Parker to be her big brother. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about the pedigree of somebody like Sheila Jordan. Let's listen to some Sheila and then we'll chat with her. I make a date for golf And you can bet your life it rains I plan to give a party But the cat upstairs complains I guess I'll go through life Just catching colds and missing planes Everything happens to me I never missed a thing I've had the measles and the mumps Every time I play an ace My partner always trumps I guess I'm just a fool Who never looks before she jumps Everything happens to me At first I thought that you could break this jinx for me That love could turn the trick to end despair But now I just can't fool this air that thinks for me I've mortgaged all my castles in the air I telephoned, I cabled Sent an airmail special to Your answer was goodbye and there was even postage due I fell in love just once Then it had to be with you Everything happens to me 
Sheila Jordan, welcome to the Jazz Session. It's so great to have you here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Well, it's a real pleasure for me, too. This is the uh, 500th episode of this show, which has been going for about 12 years, and I was trying to figure out who is it that I'd like to talk to for the 500th episode, and I wanted it to be somebody who who felt like, uh, I don't know, just a, a person who personifies what I love about this music, and uh, immediately your name came to mind, and I was really oh. happy when you agreed to do it. Thank you so much. What a lovely thing to say. Thank you. You're quite welcome. I, You know, one of the reasons that I feel that way is because it seems like for you, ever since you were first exposed to jazz, there really hasn't yeah. been any other choice for you. It feels like it's just you stepped on this path and that was it. It was the one that you were meant to be on. Yes, that's right. I, and I didn't step on it to become famous or anything like that. I stepped on it because... I was always singing as a little kid. I had a very, you know, unhappy childhood. It wasn't it wasn't nice at all. And the only way I could ever find relief in this pain that I went through as a little kid was through singing. So I loved to sing. So I sang all the time. My grandfather called me Little Song because I was always singing. But I was unhappy. So I never knew what kind of music I wanted to do, you know, but then I heard Charlie Parker. That was it. Did you go seeking out uh, music by people like Charlie Parker, or did it was it just a coincidence? Was it an accident that you came across Charlie Parker? It was Parker? an accident. I mean, as I said, I always sang. I sang at, you know, PTA meetings, and, you know, kids would bully me and made fun of me, you know, and it was something that it made me feel good. Because as I said, I was very unhappy. So uh, I never knew what kind of music I wanted to sing. But in those days, I mean, the great songwriters were coming out, like the Cole Porters, you know, Rogers and all, Rogers and Hart, all of these great composers. So there were great tunes that were on the scene then. And uh, But I didn't know what kind of music I wanted to do. And then I was in high school. I moved from... Pennsylvania to Detroit when I was 14 to be with my mother and go to high school in Pennsylvania, I mean in, in Detroit, because until I was 14, I lived with my grandparents, raised me, because my mother was much too young. So anyway, I, I was in high school, and I was in, you know, I couldn't have been very old, a real teenager. And I went across the street to the hamburger joint where everybody hung out, and we always played music. A nickel, you put a nickel in the jukebox, and I saw this Charlie Parker and his Reboppers, Now's the Time. I said, oh, I wonder what that sounds like. my nickel in and I heard four notes and I said oh my god <laughs> that's the music I'll dedicate my life to that was a pretty momentous nickel yes it was 
<laughs> it certainly was, I gotta tell you. And that was it. I knew that was the music that I would dedicate my life to and I would support it. Do you do you have any idea? I mean, it's been a, a long time now. Do you have any idea why, right from the get-go, the music reached you like that? I don't know. I mean, it was the sound. It was the rhythm. It was. It was just. Oh, it was like heaven. <laughs> Hearing Bird, man. How do you explain Bird? Man? <laughs> you know. I don't think you can. I mean, I don't know. Maybe some people can. I don't get technical about it. I just got into the, what he, how he made me feel, how this music made me feel, and hearing Bud Powell and, you know, Dizzy Gillespie and all of these great players, Miles Davis. But Bird was the man. He was the one for me. And of course, it's great to know that the music exists, but, you know, you were a high school student in Detroit. Yeah, what, what yes. Did, what did you do next? Well, it I mean, was rough. It was rough. I mean, I loved this music. It was Afro-American uh, music, and uh, Detroit was extremely prejudiced, you know? The cops were, and the people in general, the white people in general, were very against seeing, you know, uh, Afro-American kids with white kids. They were very much against it. So it was hard for me, but the music was Afro-American. And if I, wa- if I wanted to do this music, I had to go to where it was played and be with the people who, who played it. And, that, and the people were Afro-Americans. But as I said, I went through hell. And I wasn't into color. What did I, I didn't know color. In one of your song lyrics, you refer to, uh, like, the doorman at a club saying, you know, hey, little white girl, you should go home and do your homework. Yeah. No, that was the club owner. Oh, club owner. Okay. I I never felt that way. And coming from the background that I came from in Pennsylvania, where we were very looked down upon because I come from Native background. My uh, five-generation grandmother was Queen Eloquipa of the Seneca Nation. So we were called half-breeds and... You know, and most of the, my family members were, had a very, very, uh, the disease of alcoholism. So most everybody in the family had the problem. My grandfather was a alcoholic, and everybody in the family drank, you know. So, you know, it wasn't easy. And we were looked down upon in all kind of ways. And then, as I said, when I moved to... Detroit. I was going to high school. I was that I was living with my mother by that time, and she died from the disease of alcoholism. So you know, it wasn't pleasant to live with her because she was drinking all the time. But she was a very sweet woman. You know, she just had the cunning, baffling, powerful disease of alcoholism. Oh
So was it when you got out of high school that you moved to New York? Yes, I moved to New York when I was in my very, very early 20s. I might have been 20. Because at that time, you know, it was very hard to go to clubs and hear jazz music in Detroit. Not only because of the racial prejudice, but you had to be a certain age, 21, and I wasn't. So I moved to New York because I wanted to be around birds' music. I said, i got to be around Charlie Parker's music, and so I did. And you only had to be 18 to get in the clubs here at that time. That's what happened. I met Bird. He, I, I became, he became like my big brother, and he, he, he was a, a beautiful human being. He helped me in so many ways. I mean, I loved him. I loved him like a big brother. I ended up marrying his piano player. That's a good way to get next to Charlie Parker's music. <laughs> Barry Duke Jordan, his piano player, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's not a path open to a lot of people, but uh, no. it seems to have worked. But I've got to tell you that the 52nd Street was cooking, man. Bud Powell, Monk, Bird, Monk, everybody was on the street, 52nd Street. We called it the street. It was incredible. <laughs> Five hundred episodes. Twelve years. The Jazz Session is, if I do say so myself, a -a one-of-a-kind archive of the past decade and more of this music. Hundreds of hours of stories by people who create the music we love. I started this show back in 2007 with no idea what I was doing, other than knowing that I loved interviewing jazz musicians on the radio and thought other people might like it too if this whole podcasting thing ever caught on. When I started this show, my older son was four, and my younger son was not yet one. Now both are over six feet tall, and one is about to start college. And through all these years, all the moves, all the life changes, the jazz session has kept going. And now the question becomes, how much further can it go? And the only person who can answer that question is you. I'm only able to make this show because people like you make the switch from listeners to members. I'd like to be able to do so much more with the Jazz Session. More in-person interviews, more festival coverage, more travel. That's possible only if you decide that you value this show enough to support it. If you do, go to thejazzsession.com slash join and become a member for 5 or $10 a month. You'll get bonus shows, early access to every episode, and a whole lot more. Thank you so much for being here all these years. Now become a part of the next 500 episodes by becoming a member. That's where it started, and then I met Charlie Mingus and Max Roach, and well, we met Max when he was in Detroit with with Bird. Uh, me and the two young guys I used to sing with, we used to do bebop tunes like Charlie Parker tunes, and uh, 
and we met Max Roach when he was in Detroit with Bird. And I met Max again when I came to to New York, because of course I would go and hear Bird, and by this time I was going with Duke Jordan. And I was looking for a teacher, and Max suggested Lenny Tristano, so I studied a few years with Lenny Tristano. He never had a a singer as a student, but he said he would take me. So through him, through Max and Charlie Mingus, I studied with uh, Lenny. And it's always seemed to me like your singing was much more in the role of an instrumentalist. Yeah, well, you know, it's not a it's not a deliberate thing. It's just like very natural because that's what I bought. The records I bought were all instrumentalists. I didn't buy many singer. Actually, I can't remember buying any singer records because I didn't have that much money. And when I had the little bit of money I had to buy to buy a record, I was a bebop freak. You know, I was a Charlie Parker freak. So I wanted to learn those tunes, man. Falling in love with love is falling for make-believe Falling in love with love is playing the fool Caring too much is such a juvenile fancy Learning to trust is just for children in school I fell in love with love one night when the moon was high I was unwise with eyes unable to see I fell in love with love with love everlasting Then love fell out with me When you moved to New York, did you get opportunities to start performing? Well, I had a job in an office typing and I found a place in the village that didn't pay very much money. But I always found places to sing. And then after I had my daughter, um, the place in the village that I worked, the page three it was called, I went there to sing, you know. So I made $6 a night, big deal. Paid the babysitter for, took a taxi home, and that was it. But I wasn't doing it for the money. I had my office job typing in a typing pool that paid my rent and my food and took care of my daughter and our clothes and stuff like that. So I wasn't working this page three to, you know, to, to, to pay my bills. I was doing it just to be able to learn the tunes and try out ideas. You know, it was, it was an outlet for me. Was it a pretty welcoming scene? Yes, they always liked what I did. They called me a new note in jazz. That's how they present me at the page three. The lady down there, uh, Jackie Howe, she was great. She loved jazz, and she used to refer to me as a new note in jazz. <laughs> I was the only jazz singer they had. They had blues singers. You know, it was one of these places that had three acts. Like, they had six acts, and I'd do every other act. Every other set I would do. Like, they'd have one set of three people, whether they were comedians or dancers or blues singers, and then I would go on with two other entertainers. It was just a place to try out ideas. And were you usually singing with a a small group 
in that I was setting? working with piano, piano and drums, and and on Monday nights was session nights. We had bass, and then the bass player at that time was Steve Swallow, who was playing acoustic bass. The piano player that I worked with there that was incredible was Herbie Nichols. Wow. Yeah, he was. He played for all of those people, the comedians, the dancers, blues singers, and then he played for me, and it was incredible. It's amazing, you know. Looked at from, uh, I'm in my mid 40s, and uh, you know, looked yeah. at from my my perspective, where every name that you mention is a name that to me is like on this Mount Rushmore, you know, of musicians, yeah. <laughs> and. and you know, to you at that time, I mean, obviously you, you've already said that you respected those people and, you know, loved, loved them and loved the music and, but they were still also just folks that you knew. Yeah. Well, they didn't become famous until years later. I sure. mean, Herbie Nichols wasn't famous. He was just looking for a gig to make some money to help him. Well, you know, cause he was doing his composing and everything, but he had to have something so he took a job accompanying all of these different acts so he could pay his rent he lived up in harlem i think he was living in harlem at the time you know so that's what was happening i mean the same with swallow you know but swallow also he was trying out ideas i mean he was quite young when he first when he first worked at the page three and at that time, he was still playing, uh, you know, upright bass. And eventually, he he went into electric bass. But he, at the time, when I recorded Blue Note, uh, George Russell came in to hear a student of his who was playing piano for us, all the singers and dancers and stuff. You know, Herbie didn't work every night, but there was one, like, jam session night. We had different, uh, that was Monday night. We had uh, Steve Swallow on acoustic bass, and then we'd have different piano players. And I know that George Russell came in to hear one of his students who was playing for us, and he heard me. And, you know, he didn't come in to hear me. He didn't know me, but he he came in to hear his student and he heard me sing and he came over to me afterwards. He said, where do you come from to sing like that? And I said, I come from hell, man. He said, can I visit hell with you? I said, yeah. So we became good friends and it was, it was through George Russell that he got me my blue note recording, the first singer on blue note. Cause he made, he paid money and made, had a demo tape made we recorded a demo tape, and he took it around. He took it to Blue Note, and he took it also to Quincy Jones. I forgot what, it might have been with Verve. I don't remember what record company he was with at the time. But he also wanted to sign me, but I'd already signed with Blue Note. But no, it was George Russell got me all that. I got on, I, I, I didn't go around trying to get myself record dates. I wasn't into that. I just wanted to do the music and learn it and keep it going. Baltimore Oreo Took a look at the mercury Forty below no life for a lady to be dragging her feathers around in the snow leaving her mate she flew straight to the tan 
French Bahou Where two diamond jaybirds Met the divine Miss O I like to rubble his plumage Were you thinking of it as a as a career? I mean, nowadays no, it seems like you know oh, musicians no. have to be business oh, no. people at the no, same no. time. No, no, hell no, 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 no way, no way. <laughs> I just love to sing. I've been singing, as I said, since I was three years old. I've been singing, so I love to sing, and I did it. You know, it was like eating or sleeping. I mean, it was part of my being. So no, I didn't think of it as, in other words, of being famous or making a career out of it. Oh no way, uh uh-uh. uh. I just loved it. It was just part of my part of my soul, man. I'm glad you mentioned Steve Swallow because one of the things I'm a, a big fan of poetry and one of my favorite poets is Robert Creeley and you and Steve uh, did a, a really amazing album called Home that I hope Oh, I you have that? Oh yeah. I love that record. Just from a fan's point of view, I'm I'm curious about the record and now how it came to be. Steve came by because uh, he had worked with me at the page three, and he liked the way I sang, I guess, you know. So he came, this was after, I mean, we weren't working together at the page three at, anymore, but he came by, I forgot, he came by the my apartment, and he said, "I, you know, I want to talk to you about doing this uh, recording I want to do of Robert Creeley poetry. I'd never heard of Robert Creeley. So uh, I think he gave me a book of his poetry. And uh, he said, uh, I'm writing some music to it, and I'd like you to sing it. I said, oh, no, I can't do that. I wouldn't be good at that. He says, yes, you would. I said, no, I wouldn't, Steve. He said, yes, you would. I'm telling you, you would. He said, well, will you just try it? Will you just listen? I said, oh, okay. You know, I I never, you know, I, I wasn't good at, you know, pushing myself, and I... I just always felt, you know, well, I can't do that. That's too too out for me or it's be- wonderful, but I don't think I have the the capacity or the, the credentials to do something that fantastic, you know. So, but he thought I could and I'm glad he persuaded me because I ended up doing it and it was I loved it. The crowd milling on the bridge, the night forms in the And I love doing Creeley's poetry, and I love meeting Creeley. And I, I met him, and I told him, I said, oh, my God, I could never sing your beautiful poetry the way you recite it. Because I heard him recite it, and I said, oh, my God, I could, I could never sing that, you know, sing these incredible poems. 
like he recites them. And he wrote in Downbeat, I think, there was an article in Downbeat he wrote, and he said, I wish I could recite my poems the way Sheila Jordan sings them. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I was reading that. I said, oh, my God, that's amazing. Because <laughs> I, never, I never felt that. You know, I felt the total opposite. So you never know, you know. But I, I really got into the... I got into the poems and the music, and of course, I love Swallow's music. So I'm glad he talked me into it. Me too. As a as a big yeah. fan of that record, I am as well. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, dear. Yeah. So you know, I'm open for stuff. I mean, I've done jo- uh, George Gruntz, who's a uh, Swiss composer. Uh, he's passed on now, but I, he did jazz operas. I did two of his jazz operas, which I never thought I would do. And the, another thing, he talked me into it, George Gruntz. said, yeah, you could do this opera. I said, no, I can't. I don't know how to act. He said, yes, you do. So he said, try it. I said, all right. So <laughs> I did. I did one of his operas called Money, and then I did another, uh, who, who Ginsburg, I think, was the second one we did. I think D.D. D. Bridgewater was in that one. Me, D.D. D. Bridgewater, Don Cherry, and Mark Murphy. Sweet Lord. That's quite a gang. Yeah. George said I could do it, and so I argued I couldn't, and then like Swallow and George Russell and everybody else, you know, I eventually said, oh, okay, I'll try. But they ha- they always had to talk me into it. Because I never thought I was, you know, talented enough or whatever to be able to get the message across. You have a a certain preference for a thing that to me is like the tightrope walk of vocal performance, which is that you like to perform with you and a bass player. Which I just... started that in the twenty in uh, in uh, the the um, what year? I was, I'm the pioneer of the bass and voice. Tell me how that and got I started. started. It was Swallow. I started it was Swallow at the page three. Because I wanted to do, I heard the bass, I loved the bass, and actually when I recorded, when I did the Blue Note recording, it was, you know, it was great that they had never recorded a singer before, so, only instrumentalists, so they recorded, they wanted to record me, and so uh, George Russell said, yeah, you're going to, do it, but you're going to do it with guitar, drums, and bass. And I wanted to do piano, bass, and drums. He said, no, 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 no. We're going to do it with guitar. And I don't even think they were doing uh, uh, trios with guitar yet. I don't think anybody had recorded yet. Not even Ella. I don't think so. We're going back to 1962. 61, 62. So I said, yeah, that's great. I said, but you know what? I really would like to do George. I'd like to do bass and voice. And so um, Alfred Lyons said, no, I don't think we're ready for that. (laughs) (laughs) But I did it. I would do it at the page three. I would tell the piano player to lay out, you know, we've got to do three tunes, a set, and I'd I'd do at least one, one tune with just bass. And that bass player was Steve Swallow at the time. And I just loved the bass. I loved the sound. I loved the freedom. I loved, you know, and I thought, I know this can be done. So everybody thought I was crazy. I remember one time I was, I had a duo for a while with uh, Harvey, 
RVS, and we were up in, uh, I think, Montreal doing the Montreal Jazz Festival in the club, and it was packed. It was just me and Harvey, bass and voice. And some guy came in to the club, stood at the door of the club, and yelled, the place was packed, and yelled, where's the piano, where's the drums? I said, in my head, man, in my head. He turned around and walked away. Good for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, Jesus. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I just hear the bass. I love the bass, and I have a... Harvey got busy with his own thing, and he couldn't do it anymore after 18 years. So then I said, well, since I was the one that started it, I didn't start it with Harvey. I did. I started it with Swallow. I was, you know, I'm the pioneer of it. It was not a bass player said, let's do bass and voice. It was me who got who asked the bass player if they would they want to do a bass and voice. And that particular person at the time was was Steve Swallow. And then Harvey, we were working with Steve Kuhn, and then Harvey and I used to get together and I'd say, would you like to try some bass and voice things? And he said, yeah. So then we had a bass and voice thing for a while, and then when he got busy with his own music, you know, musical uh, endeavors, uh, I said, well, I'm not giving this up, Harvey, because I started years ago before you. So uh, I got Cameron Brown. So Cameron Brown and I still do it. Actually, we're going to go to Detroit in December and do a concert, a bass and voice, a house concert. Everybody gets the blues. I've had the blues most of my life. Boy, I really could have had the blues today. I looked for my clothes and I left them upstage. This is not what I planned to wear. But it ain't about the clothes. It's about the music. Isn't it, Cam? Life can be mighty monotonous <laughs> Nice We're always battling boredom You are uh, rightly praised for your approach to ballads, which is, you know, very, very unique to you. And I wonder if I could just ask you to, to say something about, about your relationship to ballads and, and why you enjoy singing them and, and why they work so well for your particular approach. I love singing. I love swing. I love bebop. I love to improvise. I love scatting. I love all that. But my favorite, my favorite way to sing is ballads. I love ballads because they get to the core of what my life is about and what it's been about. I mean, singing a ballad has always, you know, expressed my childhood, my adulthood, my life in general. I I just, I get through it, you know. I I sing a ballad, I, I could be feeling terrible when I sing a ballad, and after I sing it, it's like confessing to my soul <laughs> and then I, I'm much better then. but I love singing ballads no but they gotta be good ballads not you know not 
sugary balance. They got to be balanced that are really deep. You know, lush life, and I'm a fool to want you. And if you could see me now, and am I blue, and all those beautiful ballads that I love to sing. So they're still my favorite. Singing ballads is still my favorite way to sing. I want to be sure to mention this show comes out on December 4th. And so if people are listening of, of 2019, if people are listening to this around the time that it comes out, you'll be at the Mad Monkfish in Cambridge, Mass on the 6th with uh, Yoko Miwa and her trio. And then the next day on the 7th of December, you'll be teaching a vocal master class also at the Mad Monkfish. People can go to SheilaJordanJazz.com and find out all the details. When you teach a class, the way you sing is so you that it's... Sometimes I feel like that particular thing would be hard to teach. Like, you can't teach somebody to be Sheila Jordan. So what is it that you no. focus on well, when I you don't teach? Te- that's what I don't teach. Okay, good. I don't, I don't teach them to sing like anybody except themselves. I started teaching in 1978. I started the first, I believe it was the first jazz vocal workshop. And how it started was I went up to City College and John Lewis was one of the musical directors up there at the time teaching and uh, that the head guy was Eddie Summerlin who was the head and he had me come up and do a trio and I did a trio and then after I brought a trio up actually it was a trio from the page three I think afterwards the classical teacher voice teacher said we all met at it was John and Ed and and Janet Steele and she said you know, we don't have anything like this up here uh, at City College. I mean, it would be great to to have something like this. And, and John Lewis said, yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. And Eddie said, yeah, me too. <laughs> so they said to me, they said, would you come up and teach? I said, teach? Teach what? I said, I don't have a degree in music. I couldn't teach. I mean... I thought figured you had to have a degree, and they said, no, 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 no. And John Lewis just looked me in my eyes and said, teach what you do. Teach what you do. How's that? I said, well, I'll try. And uh, they were very excited to have me. And uh, I started in 1978, and I've, I've since done workshops, which I, I started a workshop in Putney, Vermont, with uh, Eugene Human. And I, that's been going on quite a few years now. And then I also went and taught and have been teaching for two weeks in July. They call it Jazz in July at uh, the University of Massachusetts. And that was through Dr. Billy Taylor and Max Roach. They called me and, and said, we would like you to come up and do a, a, a workshop up here. So they asked me if I would come and do it. And I said, well, I'll try. I don't know. I'll try. So my way of teaching is not to teach them me, it's to teach them the music, the beautiful compositions by all of those great composers from that era. And I say, you've got to learn the music exactly the way it's written. That's your first step. Do not try to do a million different things to change it around. You know, just learn the tune the way it's written. But pick a tune that you really enjoy, that you really like. You know, myself, 
I'm turned on by the melody before the lyrics because I can always change the lyrics. If it's a great melody, then that's the tune I'll do, even if it has terrible lyrics because I'll change them. But what I teach is like you've got to like really get into the tune and something that you really like and uh, learn it exactly as it's written because learning the original melodies of tunes if you learn the original melodies of these wonderful tunes, or any tune for that matter, and you want to improvise on it, those are, learning the original melodies are the stepping stones to improvisation. And that's what I teach. And I teach them not to throw their arms around too much and jump around too much, you know. I mean, I'm, there's all different things. I just get it. I just really get into teaching and into helping them. And, and I have a lot of books with great songs, and I carry those to all my workshops. And, you know, the kids, we have a good time. They always love it. Well, Sheila Jordan, uh, there's absolutely no better way to celebrate the 500th episode of this show than getting a chance to talk with you. I thank you so much for taking the time oh, to do it. Sweet. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Duke Ellington. You ain't been blue. If you value what you just heard, become a member for five or ten dollars a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks to this week's guest, Sheila Jordan, for helping me celebrate the 500th episode of The Jazz Session. Thanks also to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for providing the theme music for all 500 shows, and to Dave Rabel, who designed the logo way back in the day. Follow The Jazz Session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram at The Jazz Session. One reason to follow is that I post a clip from the archives on both those accounts each weekday at 1 p.m. Eastern, except sometimes not. Take a second right now, if you would, to rate and review The Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It greatly improves my ability to reach new listeners, as does your sharing this show on social media. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcast, poetry, and more, subscribe to my twice-monthly newsletter. You can go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. In the meantime, support live music whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.